So over the last decade, there have been a lot of major breakthroughs in the realm of technology. It seems like basically every other week there's a new piece of tech that's coming out that blows our minds. And, and it's, you know, it's that perpetual cycle of technology has really been exploding over the last 10 years. And there's this one piece of technology that really started gaining some popularity a couple years ago. Uh, and the first time I ever heard about it was when I saw this Samsung commercial for these dorky-looking virtual reality goggles. Did anyone else see any of those commercials? Those You kind of clip your phone into it, and it's, it's this new virtual reality experience. And as dorky as the goggles looked, the commercial was fantastic. Because by the end of the commercial, I really wanted to experience and try out these goggles. Because all you see, uh, they never show you what the person is actually seeing. All you see in, this, in the shot of the camera is just a person sitting on a stool with these big goggles, and you just get to watch their reaction to the things that they're seeing. So one woman is just sitting there on her stool, and she's like reaching out and grasping for something that's not really there. The next scene, I don't know if this guy was being attacked by killer bees or something, but he's just like swatting and screaming, and uh, you, you're figuring out, why is this, you know, what's, who are they putting this poor guy through? Uh, this one woman, it was very obviously that she, uh, obvious that she had just been really scared because she starts screaming at the top of her lungs and swatting, and she almost falls out of her chair. And, and this, uh, this one guy, I think he was looking over a cliff or something because he he just says, there's no way I'm getting any closer to that. I get dizzy and I'm going to pass out all these different things. It's like, okay. So you never really see what's going on, but you think, what, what are they experiencing? <laughs> what's going on? Because uh, apparently they were experiencing something that felt so real. It felt so genuine. It felt so tangible to them in that moment that they were encapsulated in this virtual reality scenario. Well, the point of these virtual reality experiences is to get you to forget that what you're seeing and hearing and experiencing is not real. It tries to create attention. It tries to create attention between what you know, which is for them, I'm sitting in a stool in a studio, and what I feel. Which in that moment is, I feel like I'm on a beach, you know, looking over the most beautiful sunset in the world. It tries to create this, this tension in our lives between what we know and what we feel. It tries to replace truth and reality with an alternate truth and an alternate reality. And the crazy thing is technology is getting pretty, pretty good at that. It's pretty good at creating this tension, right, uh, of getting you to feel like you're experiencing what's going on in this virtual reality goggles. That's why people started to actually react to it, right? It felt so real and so genuine to them. Now, I want us to think about that tension for a moment. Think about that tension. There's a difference between what we know is true and what we feel is true. Because strangely enough, I think that's a tension that all of us know very profoundly. I think that's a tension that oftentimes we as Christians feel. Think about it this way. There's a tension that what I know God has declared to be true from his word doesn't seem to align with what I'm experiencing and feeling and being surrounded by in my world. Or to put it very spe specifically, how about this? I know that God said in his word that there is nothing more satisfying than a relationship with Christ and choosing a godly Christ in their life. But right now, there's nothing in my life that seems more tempting and more real and more engaging than trying to get me to pursue a life of sin and, and believe the lie that sin will satisfy me more than Christ. We know this tension between what I know is true and what in that moment I feel 
is true. What do we do? What do we do when what we know to be true clashes with what we're feeling? How do we reconcile those two opposing beliefs? What do we do when we know that the righteous life really is the most satisfying life, but the righteous life feels like drudgery? Or what do we do when we know that the sinful life leads to emptiness and brokenness, but it seems like it's going to be exciting and satisfying? How do we respond? Thankfully, it's very important that we both ask and answer that question, but we're not alone in that pursuit. There's a very wise person who asked that question centuries ago, and his name was Asaph. Asaph wrote Psalm 73, which is going to be the psalm that we're looking at tonight. And he wrote it after he took a discouraging look at the world around him. Asaph felt like the wicked were prospering, that the bad guys were winning, and that the righteous were really just getting the short end of the stick. He was having a hard time seeing the goodness of God because he was fixated on looking at what he thought was the prosperity of the wicked. And admittedly, Asaph will even tell you he felt a little robbed by God. I mean, here he is. He's a spiritual and righteous guy. Not only that, he he is the worship leader, the team leader for the praise band of the temple. On a regular basis, he's leading the entire nation in praise to Yahweh. He's basically the Jeff Weiss of Jerusalem, right? Here he is. And at this moment, he's saying, I'm a righteous guy. If anyone deserves a blessed life, this isn't Jeff talking. We're back to Asaph now. If anyone deserves a blessed life, it's me. It's me. And then he looks around and he says, well, I don't feel so blessed. Actually, as I'm looking around, I think the wicked people are the ones who are blessed. The evil are prospering. The sinful, uh, sinful lifestyles, they, they seem to be enjoying it. And, and where's God in all of this? Our psalm tonight traces Asaph's journey from spiritual confusion to spiritual clarity. So with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles and look at Psalm 73. It's a little bit of a longer one, but you guys can follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. It says this, Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. And speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of the Lord and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. You, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This psalm speaks of the power of perspective. Asaph, right in the middle, does a 180-degree turn in his mindset and understanding of this topic. And what happens, it wasn't there was, that there was a change in the circumstances. It wasn't that he immediately got everything that he wanted. It's not that the wicked immediately lost everything that they had. No, he had a change of perspective. He stopped viewing his life through his own perspective and started viewing his life through God's perspective. You know, if Asaph was here tonight and he had to say boiling, and, and he got to say boiling this entire psalm down to one big idea, one takeaway that he wants us to have, I think he would say it's this. Don't buy the lie that sin will satisfy. Don't buy the lie that sin will satisfy. Really what's about? This psalm is all about warning us against the deceitfulness of sin because there's going to be moments where a sinful lifestyle seems so tempting and seems like it's going to satisfy. There's going to be moments where ungodliness and doing life our way seems like the thing that we most desire and it's going to make us happy. It's going to be exciting. There's going to be moments in our lives where it seems like, man, living the Christ-centered life is hard. It's not what I thought it was. It's not what I thought I was signing up for. But in those moments, the psalmist is pleading with us, don't buy the lie that sin will satisfy you. Don't fall for sin's deception. And from our psalm, we're going to see two, two ways, two things that we can do to guard against the deception of sin in our lives. Very first, the first half of the psalm talks about this. We need to believe that appearances can deceive. We need to believe that appearances can deceive. Notice how this psalm starts off in the very first verse. Asaph writes, truly, he's saying indeed, undoubtedly, undeniably, God is good to Israel. But the words that he's getting ready to say in the next few verses kind of contradict that. Really, that first verse is like a disclaimer. It's like warning the views and expressions being followed from this passage are not, no longer, you know, ever seen one of those, like a disclaimer? That's what he's saying here. Warning, the thoughts that you're going to see after this are no longer representative of what I think. But he says, there was a moment in my life where I was deceived. I looked at the appearance. I looked at the external uh, of the wicked, and I fell for it. I fell for the deceit and the lies of sin. He started to doubt God, and he came dangerously close to denying God in his frustration. And, and what caused that? What caused that doubt? What caused that frustration? Well, verse 3 gives us the clear answer. It says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I stumbled because I looked around and I thought that the, the, the wicked were prospering. I thought the, the terrible people, the, the people who were pursuing sin were really having the good life. And he says, I knew. I knew that God had promised that it's the righteous who live a blessed life. Asaph would have known Psalm 1 inside and out. Blessed are the ones who don't walk in the way of the wicked, who don't sit in the seat of the scoffers, who aren't following in the way of sinners, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. He says, I know that. But when I looked around, it didn't seem like that was true. 
I looked around and I became envious of the wicked. He thought he started to notice a pattern. He said, it, it seems like the ones who are really enjoying life and enjoying the prosperity of life really are the people who love and obey God. It's the people who disobey him. Through outward appearances, he became convinced that a life of sin and self-gratification really were the paths to prosperity. Sin, in his mind, became the path to a good life. In verses 4 through 15, we see a full description uh, of the lies and deception that began to cloud Asaph's thinking. As he began to turn his focus and attention away from the goodness of God, he started to fall victim to the allurement of sin. He started forgetting what true prosperity is about. He fell for the world's definition of prosperity. Health, wealth, money, possessions, power, autonomy. These verses teach us a really important lesson. Sin is really good at deception. Sin is really good at camouflaging itself as something good and fun, exciting, and enticing. And he fell for the lie, hook, line, and sinker. I mean, just look at the ways that he describes the life of the wicked as he's covetous and envious of them. He says they have no pain or problems in their lives. They always have an abundance of food and money and whatever else they need. Their lives look carefree and comfortable. Not only that, they're prideful. They have insatiable appetites. Their hearts overflow with foolishness, but there doesn't seem to be any consequence for them. The wicked are even irreligious and they lack God. And they act as if they are the gods of the universe and that they own this world. And not only that, they laugh at the idea that there's a God who judges each person according to what they do. They say that believing in an all-knowing, personal, and just God is just fairy tales. It's just a fairy tale that people believe in. Their worldview is, is one of moral relativism that says, feel free to be whatever you want to be, to do whatever you want to do, and to think however you want to think. By outward appearances, he says sin really looks pretty comfortable. It looks pretty exciting. It looks pretty great. It looks pretty fulfilling. And Asaph says, if you're living in this lifestyle, how is that not the prosperous life? The problem is that Asaph had forgotten that sin is really good at deceiving us. He's forgotten that sin is the master at lying and trickery. Sin is the original Photoshop, right? That takes away all the blemishes and all the mistakes and all the bad and just gives you a distorted image of what it's truly offering. In a lot of ways, sin is like this. Imagine you're extremely thirsty and you're sitting down at a table and in front of you is a big pitcher of water and a glass and oh, the pitcher of water's got ice in it. You know, it's water's just dripping down the side. You're intensely thirsty and that looks so satisfying. It looks delicious and you pour a glass and drink it down. At first you think it's awesome, it's tasty, it's delicious, it's gonna help, but guess what? It's salt water. Hmm? Would that help your thirst? Would that quench your thirst? Would that fulfill your need? No, but you don't, you don't really realize that. And you think, maybe I just need another glass. So you pour another glass and you start drinking it slowly, thinking this will be the glass that takes away the thirst. This will be the glass that satisfies. This will be the glass that makes me feel better. This will be the glass that takes away the need. Each time chugging that water without realizing that it is leaving you dry and empty, it's going to kill you. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. And here we are centuries later and we're falling for the same lies that the psalmist did all those years ago. We still struggle with that. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people here tonight that maybe, maybe you're not sure about this Christian thing. Maybe you're not 
not sure about giving your life to Christ. And, and instead, you're grabbing the pitcher and you're chugging the water as fast as you can because you're looking for satisfaction in this world and you just can't seem to find it. Maybe you're a Christian here tonight and you've fallen into that old lie that sin really will satisfy you and that you are missing out by living the righteous lifestyle. Or maybe you're here and there's a little piece of your heart where you don't want to admit it, you don't want to own up to it, but yeah, you've fallen into the perception of being envious of the wicked recently, envious of the sinful, envious of the world. Maybe you look around and see the lake homes, the boats, the expensive vacations that your immoral, non-Christian friends have, and uh, you get a little frustrated because you start to remember that this year all you can do is scrape enough money to get a campsite for a weekend with your family. And you think, okay, God, that's real fair. I, I, I see how that is. Maybe you're a college student and getting good grades is really hard for you and you have to work extremely hard and you study and study and study knowing that everyone else in your class is cheating and you get your final report card back and you got a C plus and you had to work so hard for that C plus and you look around and the person beside you you know cheats and didn't study an hour for it and they got an A. And you think, okay, yeah, really pays to be righteous right now, God. I'm glad I didn't take the shortcut and get an A like everyone else. Or maybe you've started to feel envious of your single friends, non-Christian friends. They're out partying on the weekend, dating whoever they want, and just having a carefree time. And then you look around and you think, wow, marriage is hard work. <laughs> Being a parent takes responsibility. It takes sacrifice. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I really would be more happy and fulfilled if I just gave all that up and chased whatever it is that I want most in our lives. We all struggle with the temptation to think a sinful lifestyle will satisfy us at times. And if we keep that perspective, it's going to lead us to a dangerous place. It's exactly where Asaph found himself. Notice the wrong conclusion that Asaph came to in verses 13 through 15. In the very pit of self-pity, Asaph throws his hands up and says, in vain I've kept my heart clean. Essentially what he's saying was, it was a total waste of my life to be righteous. What has following God gotten me? I thought having a relationship with, with God was going to make my life fun and exciting and easy and blessed and materially prosperous. And I don't feel like my life is any of those things. His faith was failing to meet his expectations. But the problem was that Asaph had forgotten what a really blessed life, what a truly blessed life actually is. The reward of faith is not using God as a means to an end. The goal of faith is not to get a, a spiritual debit card from our dad where we can go out and get everything that we want in life and just charge it to his account, right? It's not the purpose of the gospel. It's not what a relationship with God is all about. No, the reward of our faith is God himself. Having a relationship with him, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. Having our sins forgiven and having a right relationship with, with him. That's what it is. We need to keep that perspective in mind. But the problem is Asaph had a condition called spiritual myopathy. What's myopathy? That's a big fancy medical word. It, it basically means he was nearsighted, right? He's spiritually nearsighted. He had taken off his glasses and all he could think about was about two feet in front of him, this life. Immediate gratification. I want all these things right now. My definition of a prosperous life is a big house, a big car, uh, everything that I could ever want. That's what I want, God. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. <laughs> he sounded like an entitled 21st century American, right? I mean, that's, that's what he sounds like right there. Immediate gratification, where God says you've lost perspective. He says you need to gain your perspective back. He says, I've got 
the corrective lenses to put your perspective back into order. You had to turn to God to start viewing his life through the proper, proper perspective. And that's the second thing. When we're tempted to buy the lie that sin will satisfy, the second thing that we need to do, go to God to regain the proper perspective. Go to God to regain the proper perspective. That's exactly what Asaph does. In verse 16, it tells us that Asaph says, I, I want to make sense of all this. I want to synthesize all these things together. I want to I seek to understand it because it doesn't make sense. How am I supposed to make sense of this tension that I feel in my heart, God? I don't want these lingering doubts and frustrations to keep festering. Asaph was like an investigative journalist, right? He'd only heard one side of the argument so far. And after hearing one side of the argument, he was ready to make his conclusion. Being righteous was worthless, and I need to just give it up and go live uh, the sinful lifestyle. But he knew that he needed to check his sources. So what does he do? He goes to the best source of all and says, okay, God, let me hear your perspective. Tell me the truth. Correct this. Fix my understanding if it's so skewed. And he goes to the sanctuary of God. He goes to the temple of God. And after that moment, everything changes. His perspective was transformed. Why? What do you think? What did he see at the temple of God that changed his perspective? I'll give you a clue. He says very quickly, after I went to the temple, I discerned the end of the wicked. There's something in the temple of God that caused him to think about death. It sounds a little ominous. But what happened in the temple? Sacrifices. Where the priests would sacrifice the animals. Blood would be poured out. Animals would be burnt. Sacrifices would be made. Animals had to die. And it reminded him something in that moment. He got a glimpse of his God. He serves an infinitely gracious God. But he serves an infinitely just God. The God that he serves, the wicked aren't getting off scot-free. There will come a day of reckoning. There will come a day when they have to pay for their sins because the punishment for sin is death. That's what he was reminded of. The prosperity of the wicked will only last so long because there is a day of judgment coming, and if they don't repent, the punishment's going to be theirs. It reminds me a lot of my freshman year of college. I was, it was my first finals week, right? And, and I'm sitting up in my room, and during finals week, you don't have any classes. The whole point of finals week is to give you lots of time to study for your finals. It was a beautiful day, unlike, you know, our weather. Beautiful outside. Spring is budding. You can go out, and, and all of my friends from the hall, they're all out playing volleyball. They're all out playing basketball and trying to get me to do all these things. I'm like, how do they have time to do this? It's finals week. And I'm sitting in my room, and I'm envious of the wicked in this case, right? I'm envious of them. I'm like, I want to be out on the volleyball volleyball court. I'm envious of them and thinking, no, no, I have to study. I have to, and at points I thought maybe I should, I can just cut a corner here and go, and, but I thought, no, I need to study and I need to put the work in. Well, guess what? There was a day of judgment. <laughs> There's a day of reckoning. It was called the day finals actually came, and sadly to say, some of those friends from my freshman year didn't make it to sophomore year. They failed their finals, and they flunked out of college. There's a couple of them that did that day, actually, and in that moment, I didn't think, oh man, my biggest regret in college is not playing volleyball during finals week and failing out of college. Oh, it's my biggest regret. Why didn't I? No, that's not my regret. I thought, man, how stupid were they, right? But that's really how it is. They didn't prepare themselves for the final. Well, in this passage, we see that after our life ends, 
we're going to face a judgment, right? There's going to be a finals day for us. We have to stand and give an account of our lives to God. And in this passage, we see that there's two very different destinations. There's a destination for those who followed the path of the wicked all the way to the end. There's a destination for those who followed the path of the righteous all the way to the end. And the first part that we see here is we see that the wicked will be held accountable for their sins. God's final verdict for them will be guilty. Look at verse 19. It says they're going to be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Verse 27 says, Behold, those who are far from you, the wicked, they shall perish, and God will put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to him. All of those verses point to a haunting reality, that the final destination of the wicked is destruction. That's the reality it's pointing to. When this life ends, they're going to find themselves giving an account of their lives to a holy God. And the punishment for their wickedness and their sin and their rebellion is eternal separation from him in a place of brokenness and agony far apart from his presence forever. When we remember that that's the fate of the wicked, we realize it's pretty foolish to be envious of their plight, right? The sinful don't deserve our envy. They need our love and compassion and sympathy because they've been fooled. They've bought into the worst Ponzi scheme of all time. Ponzi schemes work by a fun, charismatic individual saying, give me some of your money and I'll give you a huge return on it and give you all these wonderful things when really they just squander it and, and, and misuse your money, right? It's kind of how sin is. It's a great charismatic personality. It says, invest your life with me. You're going to have fun. You're going to have excitement. You're going to have a great, awesome time. But in the end, they find out they've been taken as fools and they've invested their life in nothing. And they're going to spend all of eternity contemplating the terrible investment that they've made with their lives. But you know, the plight of the righteous is not like that. It's completely opposite. It's completely opposite. As this passage concludes, it gives us a glimpse of the final destination for those who have a right relationship with God through Christ alone. The key to rejecting uh, the, the lie that sin satisfies is cultivating an eternal perspective by focusing on the gains of godliness. Look at what we gain by being godly, by having a relationship with Christ, by, by putting our faith in him through this passage. Look in verse 23. It says, I get to be continually with the Lord. I'm continually with you. We get the assurance that no matter what happens in this life, God is with us and we are with God. No matter what trial, what tribulation, what high, what low, no matter what it is, God is with us and we can be continually in his presence. How amazing is that? He'll never leave us. He'll never, he'll, he will never forsake us. Look at verse 23. It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You have a promise that God will never let go of us. Even as the psalmist would say in here when we act like ignorant beasts and act like jerks to God, we don't have to be afraid that he's going to say, I'm done with you. I'm tired. I'm giving up. You're gone. It's one mistake too many. I love the imagery here of God holding our right hand. Parents in the room, when do you grab your kid's right hand? When you're getting ready to cross a busy street, when you're in public and you're afraid they're going to get swept away by the crowds, right? It's the idea of protection. God says, I'm holding your right hand. I'm not going to let you ever be taken away. No one is going to come between you and me. It's the promise that the righteous have. What an awesome image that is. Look at verse 24. 
It says God gives us wise counsel. You guide us with your counsel. God gives us in his word the operating manual for life. We want to know how to have the best life, a deeply satisfying and meaningful life that actually impacts eternity. He says, I've given it to you. Between my word and my spirit, you have all the counsel that you need to live a deeply satisfying life. And the biggest thing that his word would point us to is get, to the, get on the road to the righteous. Have a relationship with Christ. That's the biggest piece of advice that we can gain from that. Repent of your sin by the power of God and put your faith in Christ and have a relationship with him. It's so much better than a life of sin. And then lastly, look at verse 24 at the end. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. A final destination, spending eternity with God, getting to behold his glory, being in his comfort, being in his care. We don't have to have any fear or apprehension of whether or not we're going to make it to heaven. There's no entrance exam after we die where we have to be afraid and think, man, I hope I did enough stuff. I hope I studied really hard. I hope I can earn my spot in heaven. There's none of that. If you have a relationship with Christ, you can be guaranteed that afterwards you will spend eternity in glory with him because Jesus passed the test for you. He did. When you get to, the, when you get to heaven, you know that you can go in because Jesus is going to be standing there saying, he's with me or she's with me. Come, be with me in glory forever. When we view our lives through that perspective, we see how foolish it is to envy the sinful. We see how foolish it is to desire anything in our lives above God and above our relationship with Christ. When we view our lives through an eternal perspective, we realize that the wicked don't actually prosper. We see that the Lord truly is good to the pure in heart, as we saw in verse 1. And that should ignite something deep within us. That should ignite a passion. That should ignite dynamic praise and worship. And that's exactly where the psalm ends tonight. Look at verses 26, or 25 through 28. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever, verse 28. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Dynamic praise there. I love what he says in verse 25. He says, when we have our perspective right in life, when we've got the corrective lenses on that help us to not be so nearsighted, but think about eternity and view our lives as we should, he says here that there's nothing on earth we're going to desire more than Christ. There's nothing on earth I desire but you. It's exactly what we were singing about in our new song tonight, One Thing. All I know is everything I have means nothing. Jesus, if you're not my one thing, everything I need right now. And you know those words will never make sense as long as we think that sin or, or selfishness or, or anything else in this world is going to bring us more happiness than Christ. We have to let that go. We have to realize that sin can't satisfy. Don't buy the lie that sin satisfies. Instead, realize that Christ alone satisfies. Jesus is better than blank. And you get to fill in the blank tonight. What is Jesus better than in your life that you've been holding on to? What is it that you need to repent of? What is it that you need to get rid of and break that idol and say, Christ, I am so sorry I've been putting that before you? It's a good question for all of us to ask. 
when we realize how awesome and amazing God actually is, it's going to fuel us, give us a desire to dynamically praise him. So I'm going to take a moment to pray, and we're going to stand up, and we're going to dynamically praise Christ, okay? Does that sound good to everyone? Okay, good. Let me pray real quick. Father, we are so grateful for this psalm, and we're so grateful for the authenticity that you, that you allow us to have with you. I love that Asaph said, I don't understand this life. I don't understand what's going on. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm confused. And God, help me make sense of it. But you are so patient with him just as you are so patient with us. And God, I'm so grateful that you restore our perspective and help us to realize the true definition of a prosperous life is the reality that we can have our sins forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. We don't have to be afraid about whether you will accept us. We don't have to be afraid whether we will be pronounced guilty. We don't have to be afraid of anything. There is no fear of condemnation because we are in Christ and that is the definition of a prosperous life. And when that's our definition, God, it's going to cause us to want nothing more than to sing your praises. So help us to do that now. Help us to be excited. Help this praise to be glorious for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.